Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. SoonerCon. Despite the pandemic, Central Oklahoma's longest-running pop culture convention is back. They will hold their next event in June of 2022. To support them, fans and artists have rallied together on their Kickstarter, which you can visit. The Kickstarter will run through February 2nd. Go to SoonerCon.com for more details. The Hellmouth Convention. The Hellmouth Convention is a celebration of all pop culture, but specifically things like Buffy, Angel, Firefly, and Dr. Horrible. It is held in Los Angeles, California, and the next event is scheduled for June 3rd through 5th, 2022. Proceeds benefit the Los Angeles LGBT Center as well as the Ron Glass Memorial Scholarship Fund. For more information, go to thehellmouth.org. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossigan. I'm going to be your host. Today I'm welcoming back John Vorhaus. He has been on the show before, and we discuss comedy. Today we're going to discuss specifically stand-up comedy and writing thereof. Let's get started. Back today, we have John Vorhaus. How are you doing today? Good, sir. I'm doing great. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm doing great. Uh, we talked last time about writing and comedy and I came up with the, uh, I mentioned that you were the author of the comic Toolbox, and I've just gone through your newest book, The Little Book of Stand-Up. Uh, I want to say, I think they're great companion books. So if you are interested in one, you probably want to go, go for both. I want to know if that was by design or not. Uh, there are a couple of things going on. Once I, when I always feel like my books are happiest when they're next to each other on the shelf. You know, it just makes them feel... Like they've got good company, at least. But more to the point, I've written so many books on related subjects uh, on a continuum from creativity and drama to script writing, screenwriting, sitcom, comedy, and now stand-up. I'm always mindful of the fact that people who are fans of my work don't want the same material presented over and over again. So I really try to create a set of content that's exclusive to the book at hand. There's a certain amount of overlap. I'm sure you saw it when you read the book because there's some principles and tools that I wanna share that I've shared before, but I never want it to be a rehash. That would be kind of cynical and not fair play as far as I'm concerned. And that makes sense. Uh, obviously the little book of standup being very uh, centered specifically on standup comedy and making yourself, uh, making yourself a talent there. Uh, but I actually found a lot in there just from somebody who enjoys writing comedy in general, or even just somebody who tr looks for uh, a way to make a, a creative habit in their life. Well, I'm so happy to hear you say that because the book is about the practice of stand-up comedy. But practice is something that applies to things far outside the realm of stand-up comedy. You can have a practice of stand-up. You can have a practice of comedy writing. You can have a practice of art. You can have a practice of medicine. You can have a practice of uh, business consulting. The list kind of goes on and on. There are ways to think about practice that are healthy and productive. There are ways to think about practice that are unhealthy and non-productive or counterproductive. So even though in this book, I'm really focusing on the specific practice of stand-up comedy, the underlying principles are true no matter what your practice is. So I'm glad you extracted that value. 
as it says on page two or something like that, the three controlling ideas of the book are tools, awareness, and inspiration. And they're tools related to stand-up comedy, awareness related to stand-up comedy, and inspiration related to the power you have as a stand-up comic. But again, no matter what your practice is, you're going to need tools. You'd like to have awareness, and you certainly want to be fired by inspiration. So I think it, it, it will have, it'll travel or bicycle, as to say, back in my Hollywood days. It'll, it'll bicycle from one field to another. I found when I read the comic toolbox that it was very effective at teaching me the idea of you have to practice, you have to have a system. The book of stand-up had the effect of making me want to do that. I think that was the great distinction between the two. Can you uh, elaborate on that? I think that's very interesting. I, I want to put it in context, but first I want to understand it. Well, I mean, I, I'm trying to remember because it's been a while since I flipped through the comic toolbox, but uh, it was basically saying that you have to just keep doing the exercises, keep writing, uh, and you, you kind of get into that in the book of stand-up too. But in the book of stand-up, you're very upfront about the fact that this isn't something you necessarily feel inclined to do, not necessarily something you want to do. It feels like drudgery. And the way you frame it as not having the, the sense of fear or the sense of uh, impending failure, suddenly the resistance to doing that kind of melts away. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, I said I wanted to put it in context and the specific context is the fellow who wrote the comic toolbox in 1994 was about 40 years old. And the fellow who wrote the little book of stand-up some 25 years down the line, 26 years down the line, I think I'm a more mellow and relaxed person in my own head. And I have a, a, a deeper understanding of how this stuff is fired by joy. And at, at that point, I would say with the Comic Toolbox, I was asking myself, how can I solve these problems? But with the little book of stand-up, especially because I'm myself, I'm pretty new to stand-up, it's more like, how can I have fun with these with these games? How can I experience this joy? So I'm glad, again, I'm glad you took that value um, from it. it. It was kind of a nice, relaxed, let's have fun with it, see where it leads attitude that I tried to endow, uh, uh, inform the book with from the outset. I found that surprising because I know a couple of stand-up comics that we've talked here and there, and, and just even going from the bigger names, reading their social media feeds, there is a sense that for a, a, a profession that's built in making people laugh, it's very stressful, not always that enjoyable, which I find to be a huge irony. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, a lot of art takes place in low stress circumstances. I have a, a practice of visual art, for example, and, and I just do that in the privacy of my own home on my own time with nobody looking at me and judging me immediately. And as a writer of scripts, it's the same thing. You write a script, you send it off, somebody somewhere down the line is gonna make a judgment on it. But in the moment that you're writing it, there's not that much at stake. With stand-up comedy, you're in front of an audience. There's a lot at stake, your ego is at stake and it's right there on the line with every joke you tell. So every stand-up comic naturally gravitates toward a thick skin where they can tolerate the stress of telling jokes that don't work, audiences that aren't connected, bombing, et cetera, et cetera. What, what I'm trying to find my way to 
is a more relaxed way to even deal with that stress by lowering expectation and by changing the focus from the controlling idea, I need to win this audience and therefore collect their approval to I need to inform this audience what's on my mind uh, and define myself to them, whether I earn their approval or not. Once you step outside the need for the audience's approval, a lot of the stress falls away because you understand the worst thing that can happen to you is not that bad a thing. Um, as, as you'll know from reviewing the book, one concept I lean heavily on is don't fear bad outcomes because poor stand-up comics, and again, I put myself in this category, every time you're trying to level up from open mic to feature, feature to headliner, headliner to road comic, whatever, every single time you're trying to level up, there's this giant fear, it's all going to fall apart. They're going to judge me badly. They're going to reject me, going to die. And all of these things can be collectively understood as bad outcomes. Well, there's a, a vicious circle that appears. If you fear bad outcomes, your performance goes down because your pressure is high. You're putting all this pressure on yourself. Well, if your performance goes down, the likelihood of a bad outcome increases. So the fear of bad outcomes actually leads to bad outcomes. And that's what I mean when I speak of a vicious circle. You fear a bad outcome, you have a bad outcome that makes you fear bad outcomes even more. Next thing you know, you're spiraling down and down and out of control. On the other hand, if you don't fear bad outcomes, if you just take every experience as the thing that's happening now, you lift all that pressure off yourself, which actually gives you room to perform more effectively and I mean, perform in both a literal and a kind of managerial sense, a mental sense. You perform more effectively, you're more relaxed, you're chill, less dependent on the audience approval, more likely to get a good outcome. So there's a direct relationship. If you fear bad outcomes, you're going to get bad outcomes. If you don't fear bad outcomes, you're going to get them less. It's weird, but it's true. Well, according to me, it's true. You know, and that's interesting. I, I will say this as somebody, I'm admitting my bias here. Um, I have been fascinated and interested in stand-up comedy since I was very, very little. I have zero interest in actually doing it. But when I'm reading the lessons in the book, I do see applications in that and things I do have interest in doing. So for something that is laser-focused on that particular craft, it's remarkably applicable. Well, there's a lot in the about joke structure. And just to take one example... Uh, I'm, I pointed out that in a joke, there's three classes of information, setup, punchline, and everything else. And if you're a, a, a craftsperson, diligent in your work, you're going to look at the line and say, this part here is the setup, that part there is the punchline, and all this other stuff I don't need. That's a hard thing for writers, not just stand-ups, but for all writers to let go of, because a lot of that stuff that you actually don't need, you still like, you have an emotional attachment to it. Maybe it's a story that really happened to you, so there's details that you're interested in sharing, or maybe it's just coloration that pleases you as a writer. But when you develop the skill of doing triage on your own work, setup, punchline, everything else, keep the setup, keep the punchline, dump everything else. That's going to apply whether you're taking that joke into a situation comedy or into a comic screenplay or into a stage play or on stage as a stand-up comic. So yeah, again, I, I, I don't want to sound that calculating and manipulative, but I did write the book with the, the idea in mind that it would be directly applicable to stand-up comic, but more broadly ap applicable to anyone who's um, grazing in the fields of comedy, let's say. 
And it's not the first time you've made the point that this stuff is teachable. It is practicable because there are some people like, well, you're just born with it or you're not. And that's not really true. At least I don't think so. And you don't think so. Yeah, no, we know that's not true. I mean, um, uh, my own life experience has taught me that creativity is fungible. I don't know if you know the word convertible. You can take your creativity and apply it to cartooning or drawing or music. Uh, There are a lot of things you might encounter skill barriers with like uh, I can't play the bass because I have tiny fingers but creativity as a raw material can be applied so many different ways countless different ways it's only the sense that we have of our own limitation I'm not a stand-up comic therefore I can't do stand-up comedy and I won't do stand-up comedy that's a certain uh, hill People have to climb to get into the space where they say, well, I know I'm not a stand-up comic, but I kind of want to try to be a stand-up comic. And so I can enter the stand-up comedy space as a seeker, as an explorer, as an experimenter, without ever having to call myself a practitioner or, God forbid, an expert. One of the points that I make in the book is, like, I have 30, 40 years of experience writing comedy and teaching comedy. I have like 10 minutes of experience doing stand-up comedy. So my authority doesn't come from my experience as a stand-up comic. My authority comes from my experience as a creator and a creative practitioner who understands that if it works in one area, it's likely to work in another area as well. And the more I broaden my exploration into new areas, the more exciting my work gets and really the better it gets because it draws on so many different resources and sources. For example, did you like the cover of the book? I, I liked it, yeah. I mean, it wasn't- okay, well, I, I, I did the cover. I, I, I did the cover as well mm-hmm. because I taught myself enough art and graphic design to get to the point where I could do a cover that I was proud of and could stand behind, which is really all one would ask for. Uh, the limitation or the, the, uh, the argument against doing it would be something on the order of, well, you're not trained in graphic design, so you have no business doing graphic design. You have to go hire a professional because you're not that person. Mm-hmm. And my thought is, well, you know what? I'm, maybe I'm not that person yet. Take steps toward being that person. And that's a whole other kind of creativity that's bound to teach me a lot about this other creativity that I'm interested in as well. It all just points points back to itself and cross-references with itself. I, 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 can't, I can't sing the praises highly enough of broad practice, practice in a lot of different directions. You, there are just so many benefits, you can't even count them. And they, but the thing that stands between us and each and every one of them is this idea of, I have not, therefore, for I must not. And my attitude is, how it's always been, I have not, therefore, why not? And I think that's, that's a, a healthier and more productive place to be. too, Because you just feel like you're farting around. That's, it's interesting that you're the guy to make this case, because you're making it perfectly, I will say that. But you've got a resume, you've got a history. And what you're talking about now is something that is uh, people are only starting to figure out now that we're, we've got to a point where we have all these tools at our disposal. 
the internet and social media give us all these ways to reach out to new people, to try new things, to learn new skills. And we might have to learn new skills in a pinch just to make a living. The days sure. when you, you could apprentice for 10 years before you did anything, those are long gone. But yeah. you're, hmm. you're not one of the, the YouTube generation who are just, you know, dumped into this when you're first born. You figured it out as you went along and the results speak for themselves. It, it, as early as my early Hollywood career, I realized that there was a great premium to be paid on versatility. At a certain point in my career, I was working on Wonder Years and Married with Children at the same time. And I can't think of two shows that were more far apart from one another. And yet at the same time as also, I think I was writing a horror film at the same time. As a writer, I've always been about never leave money lying on the table. If someone has a challenge for me, I'm not going to let the fact that I don't have experience in that area stop me. And I'm going to try to add things that give that lead to new tools in the tool, tool belt, let's say. And I'm still very much doing that today. But I think hmm, there's, there's a kind of a disingenu disingenuity in my book in the sense that I make it look easy. I, I, I put forth the idea that you can play with your creativity and you can go off in a lot of different directions and good things will happen and bad things won't happen. That's kind of my thesis, but I model it with my own experience. And it's obvious to me that my experience is unique. My approach to living a life is not at all conventional. And so things like taking radical career left turns come naturally to me because I'm into that. I'm into radical change as are you with a trilobite on your shoulder. What, why wouldn't you be? Yeah. Um, so, sorry, sorry. He reminds me of a, a classroom I was in. I, I taught a class in the Czech Republic. And in that classroom, the big problem was people were afraid to voice bad ideas. This was a sitcom writing lab and it was fairly high level, serious people, but scared people. And somebody had a stuffed lobster. Your trilobite reminds me of it. And I remember promoting it as the lobster of bad ideas. And whenever anybody in the group allowed themselves, dared to voice what they understood to be a bad idea, the prize they stood to win was possession of the lobster. And, it, it, you know, just to something I thought of in a moment, it really was a powerful tool because now all of a sudden people are excited to voice bad ideas because there's a tangible reward. You get to be the person holding the lobster until the next bad idea comes along. And this is a trick I use over and over again, redefining failure as success. Because if you define failure as failure, you never move forward. If you can find some way to say, for example, if I fear a bad idea, let me try to have a bad idea. If I'm having a bad idea on purpose, I can't fear the outcome because the exact outcome I want is a bad idea. And it turns out when you go down that road, you find it's very hard to have a legitimately bad idea because most of the ideas you come up with have some kind of unexpected promise that you never actually see until you give yourself permission to voice the thing you think is a bad idea. And if I use tricks and tools like lobster of bad ideas to promote that, I just feel like I'm manipulating people for their own benefit and serving the common cause that we all share. At least that's the rationalization I use when I'm doing it. But I've been tricking myself that way since the start. So again, I, I'm kind of my own best customer when it comes to thinking about tools for creative liberation, because 
I have been obsessed with tools for creative liberation for as long as I've been a creative practitioner, which is going on. Oh man, it's coming up on 50 years now. So I've been at it a while. I, to go back to the, the cover for a minute, I'm, I will say one of my very good friends is a graphic designer and has some very strong feelings about how things should be done. And even he has said to me, you know, when talking about just getting the job done is that there are rules, there are guidelines, there are methods. Anybody can learn them. Anybody can apply them. Some better than others, but it's not some skill that can't be that one person has and another person doesn't have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm fond of the saying, you can be any kind of artist, but you can't be every kind of artist. There are things that you do that you're good at. And part of your job is to figure out where your strengths lie so that you can leverage those strengths and maximize them. But another part of your job is to figure out where your strengths don't lie so you can add strength in that area, in those areas. And beneath all of this is this, um, the self looking at the self and saying, this is permitted by me and this over here, this is not permitted by me. And, and, and being kind of engaged with a dialogue with yourself where you say, ha, ah, you only think it's not permitted. Actually, everything's permitted. Let's just try it and see what happens. Um, I, I like the idea of there are rules, there are principles. You know, uh, uh, an aspect ratio of three by four has a different effect on the viewer than an aspect ratio of one, one by one. You know, squares look different than rectangles. Rectangles look different than circles. And in some circumstances, you want a circle to do the job. And in other circumstances, you want a, a, a square to. So you need a sense of understanding of what the rules are, what the norms are, so that you, you can then figure out how you want to adjust off them. I'll give you an example. And, and, and again, I, I know I'm borrowing from art, but I was working on a piece today which had a deep blue background and it needed something and I didn't quite know what it needed. And I was adjusting the color of the foreground and I pushed it toward the orange and suddenly the orange and blue just kind of shook hands with each other. And, and, and my eyes said, yeah, that's the color combination I'm looking for. And then my brain said, of course, dummy, blue and orange always go together. Those are harmonious, they're complementary colors. Every color theorist, every beginning artist knows that. Why are you so busy reinventing the wheel for the millionth time. Well, part of it is discovery and whimsy and part of it is just bad memory. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. So let's say that you wanna be a stand-up comic and you're looking at your first five. And you might ask yourself, well, what are the rules of the first five? And by first five, I mean a, a showcase five minutes that you would use to introduce yourself to an audience who doesn't know anything about you. Now, there are, there are commonly held beliefs about what those five minutes should look like, which is kind of different from rules. I, I, I'm not in a position to say you must do it this way or it's not going to work. The ocean is blue, but it's also wet. There's always more than one right answer. But you can be sure that if you build your first five around certain principles, you have a greater chance of being successful because what you do will look more like a first five is supposed to look than if you do it some completely other or different way. And by the way, if you in the audience are wondering what, that, what those rules are, the main thing is talk about yourself. Talk about yourself, talk about yourself. 
The first five is not a place to talk about airplane food or Uber, Ubers or taxis or uh, politics or anything. Because when you're first introducing yourself to the audience, there's only one thing you know that they don't know. And that's what it's like to be you. And it turns out that that's also the only thing they're really interested in. They know what it's like to be them. They're watching you to find out what it's like to be you. So you can look at the first five and you can say, well, a rule of the first five is talk about yourself. And you might say, okay, I'm going to blindly follow that rule because I read it in a book. But you could also think about it on a deeper level. Well, why am I talking about myself? Because I'm attempting to give the audience a sense of who I am as a person walking around in the world, because my experience and other comics experiences have taught me that that's what the audience has come to see. So with awareness of myself and what I want to define myself for the audience and awareness of the audience and what they want to have the experience of finding out what it's like to be me and the expectation that I'm going to give them that then I can create a set of rules around what my first five minutes should look like that work not because they're rules arbitrarily established, but because the rules reflect underlying principles and thought that you get at just by obsessing about this stuff like I do. And, and by the way, not to shamelessly promote the book, but I will, uh, there is a section in there on writing your first five that I think in about a page and a half gives you everything you need. And it's pretty strong, strong medicine. And uh, I would recommend it to your attention, gentle listener. Absolutely. And there will be a link to it on the show notes on my website, aaronbosick.com. Good deal. Um, so to dig a little deeper there, uh, the first five, you're teaching the audience about what it's like to be you. And the end mm -hmm. goal here is to trigger a laughter response in them, which is, long story short, going to be you setting up a story that you get to the end a little bit faster than they do. Uh, they get to the end. It's a surprise. They laugh. So essentially, you're trying to set up this, this understanding that they're going to see themselves in you in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. Yes. And... Uh... What I'm basically doing is building a bridge of truth and pain between myself and my audience. I'll give you an example. It's, uh, I have a little dog and sometimes he takes craps that are so small that I don't feel like it's worth wasting a plastic bag to pick them up. You know, it's in a discreet place. It's not gonna bother anybody, but I feel like the eyes of the neighborhood are on me. So I do the fake poop, stoop, scoop, swoop, where I, I, bend down like I'm going to pick it up, but I miss it by a fair margin and, you know, go on my, my merry way. Okay, so I'm talking about the truth and pain of being a dog owner. And if the audience laughs at that, it's because they understand the truth and pain of being a dog owner. Either they themselves are dog owners, or they've experienced dogs in the past, or they know people who are dog owners, or they just have their own life relationship with those things. So the my truth and pain is literally spoken, sometimes I don't feel like picking up my dog's crap. And when I encode that information in the form of a joke, the fake poop, stoop, scoop, swoop, which is hard to say, the audience decodes that information. They extract the truth and pain. Hard being a dog owner, you don't always want to pick up the crap. They get all of this information unpacked in an explosive little firecracker that we call a joke. And when all the information is revealed and um, 
and made available to the audience in the same instant, that's when you get a laugh. There's a lot going on there. We're talking about the technology of joke structure, which touches on such things as put the keyword last because the keyword is the thing that solves the puzzle of the joke. And you can call that as a rule, but again, you wanna understand why the rule is the rule. Because if you give the audience the keyword too soon before they have all the information they need to make sense of that keyword, they have to store the keyword, get the rest of the information, and then go back and try to recreate the laugh from information already received. On the other hand, if you give them the setup, the information they need, and then the punchline, the keyword that triggers the explosion of the joke, then the joke detonates appropriately, and the explosion is felt in the form of laughter. So that's on the technology side. But on the human side, you have to ask yourself and be frank, what is my truth and pain? What makes me suffer? And, and, and how will my suffering and my self-understanding relate to the audience's suffering and self-understanding? This is a line I love to talk about, to describe my relationship with my wife. Uh, we were together for 17 years before we got married. And somebody said, is the sex better now that you're married? And I said, well, yeah, because we waited. And you know, <laughs> obviously we didn't say, yeah, yeah, yeah. and there's the laugh, there's the laugh. Because in the moment I say that line, well, yeah, because we waited, you, the listener, open a file containing everything you know about sexual experience in your own life. And if anything of that, anything in there touches on the idea that married couples don't have as much sex as they once did, that's the truth and pain that I'm trading in. And that's the truth and pain that you'll extract from the joke. Now, I have to be brave enough to share my truth and pain, but the reward is an authentic experience that the audience will enjoy. You've seen comics that leave you unsatisfied because they don't put themselves on the line. They don't say anything meaningful about themselves. They might have great timing. They might have great material, but they're not being authentic. And in you in the audience, I in the audience experience that as, okay, I get what you're driving at. I see how it's funny. I might even be laughing because you're that good a technician, but I'm not getting moved because you're not giving me the thing I secretly want. And, and I don't even know that I want it, which is a deeper understanding of the human situation. Really, at, at the end of the day, that's what all storytelling is for. And stand-up comedy is a particularly potent form of storytelling that gives the audience, if you will, jab after jab after jab into their personal psyche. And in, in the sense that everybody needs or wants a deeper understanding of the life they're living, these jabs can be very effective in, to take an example, helping you discuss death. You know, death is a hard topic and comics make money on death because it's a hard topic. It's a closely held truth and pain. Everybody suffers from fear of death. Somebody comes along and says, uh, uh, you know, I'm not afraid to die. I, I have a standing DNR order, do not resuscitate. And that's not for emergency rooms or operations. That's for every day, just walking around. I go down, I stay down, that's my motto. You know, it kind of lets people feel more relaxed about their own relationship with death to see somebody modeling authentic communication on a topic that matters to them. So now we have the technology, put the funny word last, and the awareness, talk about stuff that matters. You put those two things together and you're already well ahead of the game where uh, as opposed to what you might've had before, which is just kind of randomly going about this thing without a clear sense of 
what you're trying to accomplish and how you might go about getting there. So I used to describe the comic toolbox as rules, tools, and a good swift kick into motivation. But now I think I'm more about with the little book of standup, it's more about tools and awareness and inspiration. Because when you have that combination, you can really exercise your full personal power. And I think that's what everybody wants to do, whether they're in standup comedy or any other form of art, just have that personal power, that mojo, if you will. Really, really deep stuff there. And um, in other episodes, dealing with things uh, you know from sci-fi fan and whenever i've actually started this this conversation where we're talking about how people will use creativity and their their favorite stories and fandoms to connect with their their mental health issues uh we mm-hmm. we talked about how people have used it to you know deal with some past trauma to seek therapy I have people who have overcome addictions because of finding the right thing. And I think that it's really interesting that you're finding a way to talk about that in terms of humor when some of the stuff is not funny at all. I mean, it's funny because you can make a joke about it, but it's not funny when it's happening to you. Yeah, well, that's, that's a truism of comedy. The thing isn't funny to the person it's happening to. It's funny to the people watching. Mm-hmm. And that's why a stand-up comic will expose his or her unfunny stuff stuff that's not funny to them because it will be funny to the audience who can view it from a, a, a safer distance. But at the same time, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a stand-up comic who says they do comedy for therapy. It's their opportunity to talk about their crap and get it off their chest. You know, they, they say it's, it's like therapy. It's like therapy that people theoretically pay you for. I am not that kind of stand-up comic. I know a lot of comics who are either chemically depressed, diagnosed with depression, uh, or fancy themselves to be. Uh, I'm a pretty positive guy. I have a lot of joy and not a lot of sorrow in my life. That's by happy accident, but also by design, by philosophy. So I don't have a need to get my pain off my chest for the sake of soothing my soul. It has that effect. It's good for me. It feels great. But I'm not in in dire straits like some people are. You know, it's a funny thing. It's neurochemical. When you're engaged in creativity, you're giving yourself a steady dopamine drip. You know, your endorphins are firing all over the place. So the act of creation, whether it's art, music, painting, comedy, script writing, stand-up comedy, acting, the list goes on and on, dance, ballet. All of those things deliver endorphin surges to the human brain. And when your brain has a lot of endorphins bouncing around inside it, it just feels better. We get it from hot food, we get it from exercise, we get it from sex, we get it from creativity. And all these things make our brains feel better. So we shouldn't be surprised to discover that engaging in creative acts makes us feel better. My personal theory is that that's the way the system is designed because creativity is so profoundly pro-survival. Humans are where we are because we have the knack for creating things that don't exist. We shouldn't be surprised that our brains reward us for those activities because the competitor species brains that didn't reward them for creativity, they're not around anymore. We outcompeted them. It's interesting to think about. And I, I think that we 
might have at least touched on this before is that for the most part, being nice isn't funny. The humor comes almost exclusively from pain in one way, shape, or form. Uh, the exceptions seem to be few and far between. Oh, I was given that some thought. I was thinking about writers' rooms, some of the writers' rooms that I've been in in the past and the kind of writers' rooms that I create and run. I've been in writers' rooms that are very hostile environments, like mutually hostile environments, where people are not nice to each other. And they have the, the idea that that is a, a, a productive working environment. And it might be productive in the sense that it's so highly charged that a lot of stuff is going on. A lot of material is being created. It's being driven by competition. But for me, when I'm making a writer's room, I want it to be a collaborative place. I want it to be a place where people are happy to be there because they're going to be there for long, long hours. And if they're not enjoying one another's company, they're not going to want to spend time there. So I, I understand that comedy is not nice in a lot of environments. They, people will describe it as cutthroat. And, you know, you, we've all had the experience of the comics in the back of the club laughing at, not with the comic on stage. And it's cruel and it's mean. And I don't feel at home there. And I don't feel like I have to be at home there. I don't have to subject myself to that. May I'm older now. I got... I got no dog in this fight, you know, what, what are they going to do, do to me at this point if I choose not to participate in that? But I can certainly see that if I were a young person, if I were the, my intended reader of this book, 20-something, just trying to find their way and stand up for the first time, I would say try to promote a positive and collaborative environment, but don't be surprised if you find yourself in an environment that's not like that. And by the way, the way to be healthy in that environment is not to develop a thick skin and not to develop the desire to fight back, but to have such a strong sense of self and self-awareness and self-acceptance that you have the clear knowledge that whatever anybody else has to say about you doesn't matter because it comes from without and not from within. And your job is to validate from within 100% of the time. That's what I'd say. That makes sense. I, you definitely have a, a good sense in there that it, in order to, to maintain the highest level of creativity, you're going to have to get yourself mentally ready. You get something to the point where you want that outcome. You're willing to work for it and you're not willing to forego the distractions that could take you away from that. Well, let's talk about the distractions for a second, because sometimes those distractions are legitimate distractions, but sometimes they're interfere highlighting the sense of distraction for the sake of not doing the work. If you, if you can understand what I mean, I'm a stand-up comic. I know I have to write some material. I, you know, I gotta write some jokes. I gotta start somewhere. So I sit down to write. The first thing I notice is that I have a lot of fear, fear of failure. I'm gonna write a bunch of jokes. They're not gonna be funny. I'll have bad outcomes. The world will end. People will hear my jokes. They'll think I'm stupid. They're gonna hate me. All of this bad stuff, a lot of negative, energy pointed at the act of doing the work. Okay. I need something to help me overcome that fear and do the work. But if I'm not careful, what happens is somebody says, Hey, do you want to go to a movie or, Hey, you need to take care of the kids or what about that job? And the fear says, Oh, great. If I let myself be distracted 
by this demand that outer reality is putting on me. I don't have to face the fear of actually doing the work. So you end up with a kind of a conspiracy between the creator's fear and outside forces that give the creator's fear an excuse not to do the work. So within each of us, there is a strong desire to create and a lot of fears associated with creating. And it's not like that ever stops. I mean, I'm 66 years old. I still fear to create, not as much as I used, but enough to know that the present, that fear is still present as I always knew it would be. So I need to be as aware uh, as anyone else. In this moment here, I'm trying to do some writing. Things are distracting me. Are they distracting me because they're legitimate distractions that demand my attention? Or are they distracting me because my fear wants them to distract me so that I don't have to face the work I'm doing now? And how do we get clarity on this? Awareness and acceptance over and over again. It's just looking at yourself and saying, okay, that's how I think about myself. That's fine. Now, what can I do with what I just learned? And that's how you build a practice. Not by saying, hey, fear, get out of here and never return. I banish you. That's not possible. It doesn't exist. But rather by saying, okay, fear, I recognize you. I acknowledge you. I honor you in a sense, but I'm not going to let you stop me. And when you come up with a strategy to stop me, I'm going to come up with a counter strategy to defeat you. And so I will be engaged in a constant struggle or uh, yeah, let's say struggle with my fear to manage it and surmount it without the expectation that I'm ever going to ultimately defeat it, but also without any sense of suffering because I have it. I think that's the key thing. When you experience yourself uh, having writer's block, let's say, when you experience yourself in writer's block, you feel so bad about yourself. You feel like such a loser. Like five minutes ago, I was writing fine, and now it all broke down, and I suck. And I'm unhappy with myself, and I just want to like hide from myself. Okay, that's not the best practice because it doesn't keep you moving forward, doesn't keep you getting stuff done. So somehow or another, you have to look at yourself and say, see myself experiencing these feelings and they're the feelings that I'm having, so they're fine, but they're not getting me what I want. 10 jokes before noon, you know, sitcom script by the end of the month. Therefore, they're not serving my goals. I got to think about what they're doing to my process and figure out how I can change my process so that I'm not blocked in that way. There's a lot more to be discussed about um, writer's block. And I talk about some of it in little book of stand-up. I talk about it in all my books in one form or another because it's an ongoing issue. But the main thing is acceptance and awareness. If you have those two, two tools in your tool belt, you really have everything you need. Uh the idea of knowing what you're feeling and why and being cognizant of that relationship. Uh, I have some guests who would call that mindfulness. I have some sure. guests who would call that emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. This is something that it, it applies to a lot of areas of our life. So if, if you get it from pursuing stand-up or you've already worked on it, hey, you can use it in stand-up. It's not an alien concept by any stretch. It's just a very difficult concept for some people. Um, we're all on our path and everybody's at a different spot on their path, a different place on their path. And when I speak of path, I really mean the path of awareness, of knowing the self 
mindfulness, if you want to call it, emotional intelligence, if you want to call it. So some people are very early in their journey. They don't have enough life experience or enough self-awareness, self-acceptance to um, engage with any of this stuff. And they just need to work it by stages until they get better at it. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with just putting in the reps, getting more and more experience, experiencing all kinds of outcomes, good ones and bad ones, surprisingly good ones, surprisingly bad ones, to the point where you recognize no one outcome can hurt me. And when you realize that no one outcome can hurt you, that gives you a lot of freedom and a lot of a lot more willingness to explore yourself without fear. Um, let's just imagine that the goal, I, I'm sure that, that stand-up comics would not, a lot of stand-up comics would not agree with this. But let's just imagine that the goal of every stand-up comic is to know themselves better. Or let's say you, the listener, if you set that as your goal, the goal of my stand-up comedy is not to please the audience or even make them laugh. The goal of my stand-up comedy is to get a better understanding of myself. Now, that's going to have a lot of positive benefits. One is it's going to make it very clear what kind of material you should be working on, the kind of material that exposes you to yourself. That is to say, my habits as a, as a bad dog walker, as a dumb example, versus airplane food as another dumb example. If I want to know myself better, I have to look at myself harder. That's kind of axiomatic. But the minute I say to myself, the goal is to know myself better, then all the bad outcomes associated with failing on stage, those go away. Because I'll come off stage knowing myself better, whether the audience laughed or not. And that's profound. That's, that's a, a sturdy platform upon which you can stand to build an effective and lifelong practice of anything. And I would say, if I'm preaching, and I know I preach, but if I'm preaching, it's right there. If you want to be a stand-up comic, don't uh, think less about how can I kill in the next two minutes and think more about how do I establish a practice of creativity that's going to last me a lifetime? Because that's something that you can always put positive energy into and make progress with, always moving along your path, always moving deeper into your self-awareness, always expand your emotional intelligence. And by the way, once you've increased your emotional intelligence and your self-awareness, you have less fear, more effectiveness, better practice, better jokes, better audience response, more success. Hallelujah. Again, arrived at, not by saying, I want to be a successful stand-up comic that everybody loves, but arrived at by saying, I'll be someone who knows himself a little better than he did before. That's the, it seems completely counterintuitive, but I really think that's the trick of it. Um, geez, I wonder if you can call to mind the, the tarot card uh, of the fool. The, I, I, I'm not a tarot rabbit. card expert, so I'll, I'm going to have to take a blank on that. Okay, well, there's a character who's always looking up into the sky, and it seems like he's about to fall off a cliff because he's so busy looking up into the sky, he literally has one foot off a cliff. And my feeling is that guy never falls because his commitment to higher things, higher things, to what's above him is so great that it will actually lift him. And that's what I mean in this case when I say, if you're thinking about deepening your self-understanding and setting that as your goal, rather than focusing on the external stuff, make the audience love me, get the next gig, you know, move up from $10 to $15, whatever the money is, 
um, you're going to get those secondary benefits much more quickly because the person who is seeking them will be much better at, at, at achieving them as a function of having deeper self-awareness and self-knowledge. And so it just kind of goes around and around. It all comes back to the same thing. Know yourself better, perform better. Perform better, fear less. Fear less, know yourself better. And I can say, at least from personal experience, I've been called a lot worse things than a fool. So if that's where I leave it, that's where I leave it. John, like I said, I really enjoyed this. I've been glad to have you. I'm going to put your book on my show notes on aaronbossick.com, but you have a lot more to offer. Uh, Where can people be following your adventures on the web? Sure. I would point you to my website, johnvorhaus.com, J-O-H-N-V-O-R-H-A-U-S.com. You can find a little book of stand-up there. If you buy it through my website, I sign it and send it to you. That's kind of fun. But you can also find it and all my books on Amazon. Uh, again, just search my name and, and you'll see quite an amazing array of titles. And the little book of stand-up is my 25th book, which is kind of super good shows that I've spent a lot of time with my ass in my debt chair over the years, but quite a, quite a range from how-to books on writing comedy to some really fine novels, in my humble opinion. Ten books on poker, because at one time poker was the thing that was demanding all of my attention and driving my career, and some oddities and rarities in there too. And then the other thing is, I kind of have an open door policy. So if you're listening to this and you're saying to yourself, I got some particular needs or questions that I think a guy like John Vorhouse might shed a light on. I always tell people I abide by the five minute promise. And the five minute promise is this. If there's something that you think I can help you with, reach out to me by email. You can find my email on my website, other places. I'm not hard to find. I'm also on Facebook, of course, but reach out to me. And I will help you in any way I can to the limit of my ability, so long as it doesn't take five, more than five minutes and I don't have to leave my desk. Because it turns out there's a tremendous lot I can accomplish in five minutes sitting at my desk. So this is an open invitation. This has nothing to do with selling the books. It has to do with my higher mission of just helping people do better, the things they want to do well. That's kind of where I... That's where I get my ticket to heaven stamped, you might say, by helping people achieve their creative goals. So I can stand by that and, and, and give away five minutes of my time without fearing like I'm losing anything. And by the way, that also is self-serving because I always say, no, what, no matter what my text is, my subtext is always the same. Get them hooked on the drug that is John Vorhouse. And so we might say the first taste is free. It's a darn good taste. Thanks so much, buddy, for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Always a great pleasure. I'll be back around with the next book. Glad to hear it. All right. Take care. I would like to thank John for being on the show today, and I would like to thank you for listening. As I said before, John is a returning guest, and all the episodes with returning guests are still available on the feed. So I strongly encourage you to open up your podcast reader, flip through the episodes, and check out John's earlier episode, and you may find some episodes that you missed that you may want to check out. If for some reason you're having trouble locating it, remember the show notes for every episode are available on my website, aaronbossig.com. For future reference, just keep in mind... 
episodes with new guests are released on Thursday and episodes with returning guests are released on Sundays. You can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube. Thanks so much and we'll see you next time.